you have your Bibles, turn to the Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter one, verses twenty-two and twenty-three. Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. Now all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. I can't speak for everyone, but I know as a young Christian, I spent the majority of my time focusing on the New Testament. My reading, my studying was centered in the New Testament. And I don't know why it changed or what happened, But what a change came about when I began to take in the whole Word of God. That wasn't that I didn't believe in the Old Testament. It wasn't I didn't ever read it. But it amazes me that I would read things in the New Testament. And then later on as I got involved in the Old Testament, I would think, well, wait a minute. Paul said that in the New. And then finally it dawned on me, you big dummy, where do you think Paul got that from? Because he was certainly a student of the Old Testament. He wasn't much a student of the New Testament. You know why? Amen. It wasn't written yet, okay? It was in the process of being written. And But when we get to a passage, like even here in Matthew, and so many times, you know, even in the epistles and the different parts of the New Testament, uh, we'll find statements like this where in Matthew he tells us that what was going on at that time was to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophets. So again, it reminds me, this wasn't Matthew's idea. It wasn't Luke or John's idea. It wasn't Paul's idea. What they had came from God, and a lot of it was simply that the Word of God might be fulfilled. Now, remember, if God says something's going to come to pass, what can you count on? It's going to come to pass. Every promise of God... Every prophecy of God is going to be fulfilled. Now, uh, certainly, it hasn't happened 100% yet, but before it's all said and done, guess what? 100% fulfilled. So Matthew reminds us that God said there'll be a time when a virgin is going to carry, going to bring forth a child. Is that crazy or what? That's unheard of. And that child is going to be a son. This is before modern technology, by the way. So there was no, I don't know what they call them, kind of, what are they, echocardiogram? What do they do? I don't know. But God says, be a child, be a son. And he said, they're going to call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. I'm afraid if you're like me, there's a danger of becoming so accustomed to that, we forget how awesome that really is. God 
with us. I do want to remind you in the same passage, the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. So remember, his name was Jesus, but his title was Emmanuel. And Emmanuel really describes the essence of who Christ is. He is God with us. I I don't know about you, but it still amazes me. Why would God want to live with us? We touched on this a little bit last week. But according to the Word of God, within every human soul is somehow a God given awareness that there has to be something more. We're not going to take time to read it, but in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about that. How even all creation groans, and we join them in groaning for something, something more than we have. And I've said this often, and I mean what I say. Folks, God has been good to me. Better than I ever deserved. But even at the end of the day, when everything is all wrapped up, if this is all there is, I'm still missing something. And so God has placed something in our hearts that nothing in this world can satisfy. Nothing. I mean, let's face it. You know, even Solomon, the wisest, richest man who ever lived, and he wasn't bragging, that was a fact. He searched everywhere under the sun. And what satisfaction did he find? It's all vanity and like chasing the wind. And again, I will remind you tonight, as human beings, we operate totally different from any other form of life. You and I, humanity, we were the crowning glory of God's creation. We were created to glorify Him and to know Him. And we were born and created into a, we were created into a perfect world. And so because of God's design, we have eternity in our lives. And because of that, there is a sense, an innate sense within us, there's something more, something more to life than what we can see, what we can experience. And I want to suggest to you something better, something better. And I'm not sure everybody recognizes this, but I'm I'm convinced what it is. In our lives, there's a longing inside of us to know God. Now remember, who knows better what we need than God? And God knew we needed Him among us. We needed Emmanuel. And He had a plan. And because we were made to know God, to love God, to glorify God, There's something deep within inside of us that somehow we want to know our Creator. 
Now, I realize not, not everybody goes about it in the right way, but almost everywhere in the world, people worship something or somebody trying to find a higher satisfaction. But somehow, we have a desire to know that God has broken through into our world. Amen. I, I don't know about you, but I need, something, I need to know something more than that God is way up there somewhere. I need to know that God is with me. And that's why Emmanuel is so, so important. And, and not just that. I want to know that God has come down to where I am. I want to know that God knows by experience how I feel. Now, I know he's omniscient. I realize that. He knows where I live. I want to know that God cares about me. He knew what he does. And that's why God promised to come into our world. You know, it's interesting. Again, God knows what's best for us. And we're not going to take time to go back to Genesis chapter 1, but you know the story. Everything God did, the Bible says, Moses writing, and it was good. But to get to chapter 2, there's one thing that wasn't good. And that was the aloneness of man. And God took care of that. Of course, the fall comes. Creation is marred. And we're not who we could have been. And we want to know, Lord, that I'm not alone in this universe. One of the great, and there are many great things about our God, but to me, one of the greatest things, He invites us to come to Him. He invites us to experience Him in a real, intimate way. Now, again, Matthew has stated very clearly this fulfilled prophecy some 700 years earlier by Isaiah during the reign of Ahaz. And Isaiah prophesies about the birth of one who would be God coming to dwell with men. And by the way, Isaiah didn't say when it would happen. He said it would happen. God didn't tell him the timetable. That's in God's hands. But God said to Isaiah, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life I was sick of myself. I was tired of being the way I was. And I needed somebody to deliver me from that. There was a longing to be set free from my sins, if you will, set free from myself. And the older I become, and I'm not old yet, uh, I, got a, I have an uncle who's a year older than I am. And he sent me a birthday card. He does every year. And this card said, this is official. You're old. And on the inside, it said, this is not fake news. 
And uh, I guess he's right. But the older, the older I get, and the more funerals I've done in my ministry, I'm thankful that we have victory over the grave. That is not the end. And so we long for victory over the grave, and we have a longing for our heavenly home. And my friend, for those who are children of God, one day it will be ours. It will be ours. So the bottom line is, without a doubt, there's a longing for Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14, we did that last week. John said the word, be, the word was made flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you've heard me say it before, and I'll never get over this. <coughs> How many know that John is writing after the fact? In one of his epistles, he said, we handle, we touch the word of life. And I don't know for sure, but maybe John, when he came to this thought, he laid his pencil down for a minute. And it began to revel in the glory of that. We beheld the glory of God. He wasn't just a man. He was human, all right, but he was fully God. And John said, we beheld, we witnessed, we saw the glory of God. You know why? Because God came down. God came down. To be the Savior... To be our Savior, they had two things were necessary. Number one, Jesus had to be born under the law, Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. But also, he had to provide forgiveness of sins. Now, we talked about the blood this morning, how it's required for forgiveness. Christ's blood provided our forgiveness. And so unless God became flesh, Christ could not die. And unless God became flesh, the cross had no meaning. But thank God, God did come down. God became flesh. So we began last week to focus on that word, Emmanuel. God with us. So three things I want to point out about that. First of all, God with us. In the form of a son. Think about that. We're not going to spend a, a lot of time. We did a, a quite a bit of detail last week on that. But in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul wrote, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up to glory. When you say it's all in a nutshell right there, that's what God did. He manifested himself in the flesh. <coughs> Excuse me. He was justified in the spirit. Angels saw him. He was preached to the Gentiles. Many in our world believed on him. They continued to do so. And then he was received up in the glory. 
So, you know, Paul, you know, we mentioned it last week, but he talked about the mystery of godliness. Now, remember, the, the word mystery in the New Testament speaks of something that one time was not revealed, but now is. What was once a mystery is no longer a mystery, because that mystery of godliness is now revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, we see in this verse the humanity and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel, the mystery of godliness. So, whatever else you want to say about Jesus Christ, he was more than a mere man. He was truly human. There's no doubt about that. But his ultimate identity certainly goes far beyond humanity. He was God come down to earth. God with us in a son. Born of a virgin. God manifest in the flesh. In Matthew 16, Jesus, together with the disciples, he asked him a probing question. He said, "Who are what, what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And they gave him various answers, and there were several different ones. But finally, he made it very direct and to the point. He said to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? How many know that's the most important question we could ever answer? Who is Jesus Christ. The bottom line is, he's God manifested in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So God with us in the form of a son, born in a manger some 2,000 years ago. But the second thing. Not only was God with us like as a son, God with us, a shepherd. A shepherd. Not only God in the flesh, but he's also the shepherd that we need when troubles come our way. Now I know, probably some of you never have troubles. We know that's not true. And we need to be reminded every day, I think, at least I do, that the Lord knows all about our troubles. He knows where we are. He knows what we're going through. And, and this, it, it really overwhelms me. Jesus knows me. Amen. Now put yourself in there, okay? Make it personal. Jesus knows me. Jesus knows me better than anyone else knows me. I think Jesus knows me better than I know myself. Or at least than I'm willing to admit. He knows me. David wrote in the 139th Psalm, first two verses. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. 
thou understandest my thought afar off. He knows everything about us. He knows us intimately. Every detail of our lives. And I must be reminded, I must remember, I think all the time, that he knows all of my hidden secrets. He knows all of my fears. He knows all of my doubts. And he knows the doubts I have about what tomorrow might bring. And he loves me anyway. He loves me anyway. And it really blows my mind that he knows all these things about me. And he still loves me. His love is not diminished. He knows me. And yes, he still loves me. Anyway. I think it was Mark Twain who said, we're all like the moon. We've got a dark side nobody sees. <laughs> That's true. And I know that I'm not always easy to love. I'm not always easy to get along with. But God loves me anyway. He loves me anyway. Most of us, most of us have lived long enough to know that life can be tough. Amen. It's not always a bed of roses. Rarely is it, is, is it that. And even roses have thorns, right? I think Job was right when he wrote these words, or said these words, Job 14.1. Man that is born of a woman is a few days in full of trouble. Can you believe we're already in 2023? Already one month behind us of the year? Can you believe you're as old as you are? I mean, come on. Where did the time go? So our life is short. And Job was right. It's full of trouble. Which really opposes the long, trouble-free life we would prefer to have. God's Word is real and true. And I'm remind you that our life is a journey. And the road is not always easy. It's not always level. The journey we take in life is filled with valleys, places that are difficult to navigate. In the 23rd Psalm, you'll, know, you'll recognize it, verse 4, David said this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. If we were able to follow the path, the Jews, the Israelites, 
took on their yearly journey back to the temple. Part of that path was known as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Now, by the way, you'll, you'll read some of the Psalms, I think sometimes around Psalm 118 and you know, two or three before and after that. They're called Psalms of Ascent. They're going, they sing those Psalms, and they go back in their yearly pilgrimage, or one of they go back for one of the three main festivals. And this valley was one of the main routes that travelers took to Jerusalem. And from what I've read, I've not been there. It's a deep rock canyon. And because of the depth of this canyon, even in the daytime, it's relatively dark there. The sun hardly reaches that far down, or at least not too bright. And the Valley of the Shadow of Death was named that because travelers, as they traveled through that, dark, dim valley, they were at risk because a lot of times there would be thieves and bandits hiding in the shadows. And certainly that's one of the reasons they wouldn't travel alone. They would travel in groups. But there are also wild animals lurking in the shadows as well. But I'm convinced that David wasn't talking about a literal valley, even though there was one by that name. And so we don't travel through dark valleys in a physical sense. So we understand what David wrote metaphorically. My question is, do we have valleys in our life? Yeah. And our, our dark valleys today, some of them look like physical suffering. Some include chronic pain. Some of the valleys include loss of a loved one and deep sorrow. For a lot of Christians, their valley in our world, not necessarily in America, but it could be soon, but their valley is persecution. From their culture. I think all of us at time to time we go through emotional valleys. Valleys of doubt. Valleys of fear. And at times even valleys of despair. The shadow of the valley of death. And if you're like me, I think you'll agree, well, no matter what our valley might be at any particular time, when we're in the valley, it feels like we're all alone. All alone. Interesting story, true story, in the book of First Kings. In chapter 20, there was a time, <coughs> excuse me, when the king of Syria, 
Ben-Hadad. He joined, made allies with 32 other kings. And they decided we're going to make war against Ahab in Samaria. And of course, thank God for being a God of grace, because Ahab didn't deserve this. But God sent a prophet, and we're not told who he was. But he sends an unnamed prophet to Ahab. And this prophet assures Ahab that God was going to hand over the Syrians and their allies to Ahab. Basically, the prophet said, Ahab, don't worry. God has got this. Now, from a human standpoint, Ahab didn't have a chance. But you read the story for yourself. In 1 Kings 20, you'll find out that God kept his promise. Well, shortly after that victory that God gave them, don't know if it was the same prophet or not, might have been, we're not told who it was, but his prophet comes back. He comes back to warn Ahab. And he says, basically, Ahab, your trouble's not all over altogether. Because you need to know that in the spring, they're going to try it again. They are going to try it again. So in verse 23 of 1 Kings 20, look what it says. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, that's Ben-Hadad, said their gods, Israel's gods in other words, are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain. And surely, we shall be stronger than they. Now, do you get the picture here? Yeah, Ben-Hadad, we got, we got whoops. But the problem was we made a mistake. Israel's gods, only gods on top of the mountain, on the hill. And that was our mistake. We fought them on the hill. But king, if we go back, we fight them in the plains. We'll win. We will overcome. I guess my question is, really? Really? Our almighty creator God is only victorious in the hills and not in the valleys? Really? The God of all creation and all nature can only prevail in the mountains and not in the valleys? The God who parted the Red Sea? The God who parted the Jordan River later on? The God who caused the wall of Jericho to tumble down with no one touching it? The God who shut the mouths of the lions to protect Daniel? The God who prevented a fiery furnace from even sending the hairs on the three Hebrew children? Really? The God who caused both the sun and the moon to stand still when Joshua asked more time for the battle? The God who caused Hannah, the barren mother, wife, 
to conceive. The God who spoke to the stormy sea of Galilee and said, be still. The God who reached in and put money, pulled money out of a fish. Really? He's only God of the hills? Now, by the way, for those who only have an idea about who God is and have no intimate relationship with Him, they can only be aware of some of the things He does. But they will never fully understand the larger spectrum of his unbridled power. The scripture asks the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? What's the answer? No. No. His immeasurable grace, his insatiable desire to bless his children. And I want to tell you something, folks. He blesses on the mountain, and he blesses in the valley. <laughs> Story's not over yet, by the way. Let's go back to Second Kings 20, verse 28, 29. And there came a man of God and spake to the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord. Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys. Therefore, would I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 29. And they pitched over and one over against the other for seven days. And so it was. That in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. And the rest got out of Dodge. Our God... Not only is he God of the mountain, he's God of the valley. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing, if you know the story of Ahab, God's been trying to tell him this all the time. Ahab's been stubborn. And the problem is, when it gets done, you're going to know there is a God in Israel. See, Ben, ben Hadad, the Syrian king, had no idea who God is. To him... God's power was limited like those of his false gods in the plains. But God showed Ben-Hadad something different. And he soundly defeated the Syrian army. How many times in our life has the enemy confused us to the point to believe the power of God is limited? We've all been guilty of that. There are times in my life, I've got to confess, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm struggling right now. Help my 
unbelief. The enemy tried to convince us there are certain situations, now imagine this, that are too difficult to believe God for. But I want to tell you, no, there's not. There's nothing we cannot believe God for. The God who heals diseases, the God who heals illness, illnesses, the God who does all of that can handle anything in our lives. Anything in our lives. He can fight our battles. No matter where they are or what they are. <laughs> I've lost count of how many people through the years I've known who have prayed for their spouse to come to know Christ. <laughs> he can bring that spouse to God. He can do that. He can cause the barren to be fruitful. Nothing is too hard for our God. Our God is God of the valleys. He's God of the hills. But here's what I want you to know. No matter what your situation is, we are covered by God. He's there. He is there. Whatever valley you may be walking through today. The Lord Jesus Christ knows who you are. He knows where you are. And trust me, you're not lost and you're not forgotten. He will never leave you or forsake you. And that's why we must never forget the wonderful truth of Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. I want to go back. We read verse 4 from Psalm 23. Let's read it again. David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. I believe that God's Word is breathed out, inspired of God. And I think wording is important. But I want you to notice the change of the narrative when you get to verse 4 of the 23rd Psalm. Let's back up to verse 2 and 3. David says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And maybe this is not important, but it kind of caught my attention. In verses 2 and 3, David speaks in the third person about God. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. He guides me. Sort of a formal way. He, 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 his. But when it get to verse 4, it's not he anymore. It's you. David moves from he, referring to God, to you, referring to God. David says, 
you are with me. No longer he. And understand, back to verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. How many of that's personal? And David says, you are with me. And David acknowledged the God of the universe has now become David's personal shepherd. When I walk through the valley of death, you walk with me. I am not alone. I am not alone. I am not abandoned. And by the way, we don't even have to make the final journey alone. He never leaves us or forsakes us. I like that word you and me. Because that word you, it's a promise we can count on. Even in the darkest, deepest valley, the darkest moments in our lives, and like the old song says, one of these days, you don't have to cross Jordan alone. He goes with us. You are my shepherd. And so no matter what we go through in life, and, and you know, I'm preaching to myself, i got to remember, we don't have to be afraid. Why? Because God himself, Emmanuel, is with us. A few years ago now, quite a few now, a pastor friend of mine was in, uh, what's the army hospital called? Veterans Hospital. And he had surgery on his back. They went in through his neck. And he couldn't hardly swallow water. Now this lady came in there. She claimed to be a nurse. She looked and acted like a drill sergeant. And she came with a glass of water and a pill about this big. I think I'm exaggerating a little bit. And she says, I won't give his name, and she said, she called him my name, said, you need to take this pill. He says, ma'am, I can't swallow. Her reply was, do you need a straw? And I said to him, I called him, I said, brother, and I gave his last name. I said, I love you, but I'm out of here now. I'm not going to stay and watch you try. To swallow that horse pill. (laughs) Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't leave us? He stays with us. God with us a son. God with us a shepherd. And number three, God with us a savior. Matthew 121. He shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name. I'm sorry, she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Doesn't matter who you are, no one will truly ever understand who Jesus really is until they realize Jesus came to die to save us from our sins.
That's why he came. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. That is why he lived. That's why he died. That's why they buried him. And that's why he rose again the third day. He did come to seek and save those who were lost. And thank God he will save anyone who trusts in him. Now, I don't know who originally said this. I've heard it several times, read it several times over the last 25, 30 years. But someone said this. If our greatest need had been education, God would have sent a teacher. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent a banker. If our greatest need had been advice, God would have sent a counselor. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, thank God he sent a Savior. He sent a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He's Christ the Lord. He's the Son of God. He's the one who came to earth. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Thank you, Jesus. All that God is, and all that man is, They meet in perfect union, complete divinity, complete humanity in Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully human. The God-man, and I'll never get over this, came to earth to save me from my sins. Thank you, Jesus, to save me from my sins. And here's what I love about this. God's answer to loneliness is not some theory. It is not something theoretical at all. God's answer to loneliness is wrapped up in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the one who sticks closer to us than a brother. He's the one who will never leave us or forsake us. And the best way to overcome loneliness is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Emmanuel, God with us. And all that God has to say to us, all that God wants us to know can be wrapped up in one word, And that's the word Jesus. In Emmanuel, we see a son, a shepherd, and a savior. Let's stand together.